Good morning, everyone. Uh, for those of you that don't know me, uh, my name is Mason, uh, and I'm currently interning with the church right now, and uh, they've given me the opportunity and the privilege to um, preach a sermon here uh, and preach God's word to God's people, and so I'm really excited about it, and I hope to encourage and edify you guys today. Um, and so today's text uh, comes from Leviticus chapter 10, which is page 88 in your guys' pew Bibles. Um, and I know probably as soon as I said Leviticus, some of you guys probably were like, uh, what? Uh, I remember I told David Thompson, some of you guys know him, um, that that was my sermon text. And he's, uh, his exact quote was, bro, what? <laughs> so, but um, really, I do think Leviticus is um, a really important book of the Bible that kind of flies under the radar, but it really deals with uh, the weight and kind of the tension of a holy God living with an unholy people. Uh, and so I think it's really important for us to learn from Leviticus, and particularly this passage, because this passage, I think, drives home just kind of like what happens when we get that wrong, and also a little bit about how we can get it right. So all that to just say, um, I'd really appreciate it if you guys just opened your Bibles and turned with me to God's word. All right, Leviticus chapter 10. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it, and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord, and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said, Among those who are near me I will be sanctified, before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And Moses called Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary, and out of the camp. So they came near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, Do not let the hair of your heads hang loose, and do not fear or do not tear your clothes, lest you die, and wrath come upon all the congregation. But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. And do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting, lest you die, for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. And the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean, and you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. Moses spoke to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his surviving sons. Take the grain offering that is left of the, food off, of the Lord's food offerings and eat it unleavened beside the altar for it is most holy. You shall eat it in a holy place, because it is your due and your son's due from the Lord's food offerings, for so I am commanded. But the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed, you shall eat in a clean place, you and your sons and your daughters with you, for they are given as your due and your son's due from the sacrifices of the peace offerings of the people of Israel. The thigh that is contributed and the breast that is waved, they shall bring, they shall bring before or bring with the food offerings of the fat pieces to wave for a wave offering before the Lord. And it shall be yours and your sons with you as they do forever, as the Lord has commanded. Now Moses diligently inquired about the goat of the sin offering, and behold, it was burned up. 
And he was angry with Eleazar and Ithamar, the surviving sons of Aaron, saying, why have you not eaten the sin offering in the place of the sanctuary, since it's a thing most holy and has been given to you, that you may bear the iniquity of the congregation to make atonement for them before the Lord? Behold, if blood was not brought into the inner part of the sanctuary, you certainly ought to have eaten it in the sanctuary, as I commanded. And Aaron said to Moses, Behold, today they have offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord, and yet such things as these have happened to me. If I had eaten the sin offering today, would the Lord have approved? And when Moses heard that, he approved. All right, so a lot of stuff just happened in that text, but I think if we can pull one thing from that text, it's that this text really invites us to ask the question, if you were to stand before God today and he's going to ask you, why should I let you come into my presence, what would you say? Now, before we really get into things, I want you to stop here and think about your answer. Like, I just want you to really have a concrete answer in your mind because what this text teaches is that there's a way of answering that question. There's a way of coming to God. There's a way of reading your Bible and praying and even coming to church that is going to get you killed. Uh, and I'm not exaggerating there. Like, we see it in this passage. And it also teaches that there's only one very specific way of doing so that won't get you killed. And so if you try to come to God through the back door or by scaling the fence, he's going to treat you like the intruder you are, and he's going to kill you on the spot. Uh, and that's intense. I mean, assuming you believe me uh, when I say that, one natural response is probably like, man, like, this whole God thing is so serious like, and dangerous. Why on earth would I bother with him in the first place? Like, I'm just going to stay as far away from him as possible where I know it's safe. And to be honest, like, I know probably no one in this room is ever actually going to say that because I think on some level we probably all kind of get that you can't just run away from God. Um, but there's a, still a good chance that you often show that that's how you think by the way you live your life. Like, we might not fear for our lives like the Israelites that we read about here in this passage, but if you've ever missed church or forgotten to read your Bible or pray or um, anything and you just found that a subtle sense of guilt made it just a little bit harder to get back into those habits, then you've wrestled with the tension of coming to a holy God as an imperfect human. But, this passage also te teaches us that as tempting as it might be to just kind of avoid God, um, it also teaches that there's like a need that we have to come to God. Like you can't just avoid God, like that's not an option. We have this fundamental need to come to God and we can only be satisfied if we do that. And so if we don't come to God, we're going to try to satisfy that need in other things. And we'll make those things into our functional, like, gods. So I think it's important to really wrestle with that. Uh, and so what God does in this chapter, in Leviticus chapter 10, is he teaches his people, both the Israelites that we read about here and us now in this room, that there's only one way that we can come to God. And... He teaches us that we must come to him. We have to, both for his good or for our good and for his glory. 
And so, since there's so much at stake here, assuming, again, that you actually believe me, um, I want to take the time today to just look at this text closely and look at, first, just one big reason why we don't come to God, and then look at one essential reason that the text gives for why we have to. And then I want to close by looking at the example of Nadab and Abihu that we see here um, and seeing kind of what they got wrong and learning from their example and seeing how we can get it right. And yeah, I want us to leave with the confidence that we actually can come to God. But before we get to Nadab and Abihu, I know that's at the beginning of the passage, but before we get there, I want to go to the last paragraph here, verses 16 through 20. Um, and I want to look at Aaron's other two sons, Eleazar and Ithamar here. Um, and if this seems out of order, uh, just bear with me, because I think it's going to make sense. Because uh, what we're doing is we're kind of tracing the flow of this passage from the fallout at the end back up to the event itself. Kind of like if you follow a river back up to its source here. Uh, and the reason I'm doing that is because it's going to be hard to really understand or even care about coming to God and doing so rightly if we don't understand why we need to do that and why it's dangerous if we don't do it right. And so, first things first, the question I want to address is, like, why don't we come to God? And I think the answer is um, primarily because we think, even if we won't admit it to ourselves, that the risk outweighs the reward. Like, we probably aren't afraid for our lives, like Aaron and Eleazar and Ithamar are, but, you know, we might be afraid that we'll find out that God doesn't accept us. Like, we're afraid that, you know, if we knock on the door, God probably won't kill us, but he might not answer. And that's terrifying. I mean, can you imagine if the God of the universe didn't answer you? And that makes us a little bit different than Eleazar and Ithamar here. I mean, they're terrified that he would answer. But the problem is fundamentally the same as theirs. We're scared, just like they were, that we won't measure up. And we see that fear in Aaron's response to Moses if you look in verse 19. I mean, Moses is pretty understandably upset that on the same day that Nadab and Abihu are killed for not carrying out their duties the right way, Aaron and the two sons that he has left do the same thing and break the rules as well. And so Moses asks them, like, hey guys, like, why didn't you bring the blood into the sanctuary and eat the sacrifice there? I mean, he's upset with them because God's provided a way for them to come to him and share a meal with God himself. And if that wasn't enough, God commanded them to do that. But they didn't. And so he wants an answer. And Aaron gives him one. He says, uh, basically, uh, because we're scared. Like, God's holy. We're not. And we just learned today from painful experience what happens when unholy people come to a holy God. If you look at his own words in verse 19, Aaron says, If I had eaten the sin offering today, would the Lord have approved? And the answer, if we come to God as we are, is no. I mean, if you look, Aaron clearly meant this to be a rhetorical question. And Moses agrees with him. In verse 20, the text says that when Moses heard Aaron's excuse, he approved. And that's because Moses and Aaron both know, especially after like, the events that just happened today, that 
they have no right to come before God, ultimately. And the result, naturally, when we see what happens when we come to God the wrong way, is that we stop coming to him. I mean, when Eleazar and Ithmar recognize that they are just as sinful as their brothers Nadab and Abihu, they want to stay as far away from God as possible. And if you go back even further, when Adam and Eve recognize their nakedness in the Garden of Eden, they hide themselves from God. And when we recognize some sin in our lives today, uh, our first instinct is to retreat from God, just like them, to stop reading our Bibles, stop coming to church, stop praying, stop spending time with God's people. And, I mean, just in my life, like, that was exactly what happened in my early childhood and in my family. Um, so to give a little background, uh, I grew up in a household that just was, like, super rooted in the American work ethic, um, which I got nothing against, but it was, like, kind of that idea that, like, you earn everything you get. Uh, and the bad part was when we carried that into our conception of God, and we did a lot of that in ways that I'm still trying to kind of untangle and separate today. Uh, and so as a result of that, we all had this kind of idea that, one, we had to be, like, you know, good and hardworking to be successful, and we had to be good and moral to be right with God. Um, and if you look at that kind of just at face value in itself, that seems to be pretty close to what Aaron and the two sons that he has left kind of realize in this passage. Um, the problem is that, just like them, me and my family slowly learned that, uh, like, whatever we did, it never felt like it was good enough. I mean, at least speaking for myself, even as like a little kid, like a six or seven year old, I was asking like, man, like how good do I have to be to be good enough for God? And the problem was like, no matter how hard I tried to justify myself, you know, either by, you know, rationalizing my mind or just trying to do better, uh, I still had just this nagging fear that, you know, I was gonna find out that I wasn't enough. And so I had this longing to know that I was loved and accepted and secure in God, but it seemed like God himself was holding back any sort of assurance that that was actually the case. And I don't think I was the only one in my family that felt that way. I mean, like, the ultimate result, after years and years of that striving and that unfulfilled longing, is that we gave up. I mean, my family didn't go to church, we didn't pray, and I don't even think you could find a Bible in our house, even though we had hundreds of other books. And, in fact, like, my mom and I both eventually, after years, became atheists. And so, if you looked at our lives, you'd see that kind of our, our solution to the question of, man, how can I be right with God, was just like kind of like a resounding no comment. Like, we wanted nothing to do with the question. And, in that sense, we were just like Aaron and the two sons that he had left. To us, making sure that we were right with God seemed like it was going to cost us more than we could afford. And so we switched tactics and tried to just stay away. But, I mean, going back to our passage, at least in one sense, Moses affirms that that's a fair assessment. I mean, he says Aaron's right to think that God wouldn't have approved of him. But at the same time, the passage isn't going to let us stop there. It still says to us that even if it's absolutely impossible for you to come to God, you still have to do it. Like, just because a man or a woman is too poor 
to buy food for himself doesn't mean he suddenly, you know, no longer has the need to eat. And, you know, just because he, you know, tells himself he's full, that doesn't, you know, negate his hunger. I mean, if you give up on eating, you're going to die. And in the same way, like, if you give up on coming to God, you'll die. And, I mean, if you look at this passage, the two are really interestingly tied closely together. I mean, if you look, when God calls Aaron and Eleazar and Ithamar to meet with him in the sanctuary in verses 12 through 15, God calls them to eat the offering there as his provision for them, both, you know, for their physical needs and for their spiritual needs. Like, even as they satisfy, you know, the physical need for food, God tells them that he's at the same time satisfying their deeper need for love and for peace with him and fellowship with him. And so in eating the peace offering, what Aaron's doing is he's declaring his confidence that he's actually at peace with God through that offering. But the problem is that's exactly what we're afraid of, that we aren't at peace with God. And that's why we stay away. That's why Aaron's family doesn't eat the offering like Moses told him to. And ultimately, that's why my family turned away from God and from church. But the problem is, again, like, we need to come to God. And so even if we think it's impossible, we have to try. Like, to give up on coming to God is to give in to the starvation of our own souls. And so if that is true, if we do have to come to God, then how? And here I want to see your guys' answers first. Uh, and so I want you to remember that question I asked at the start of this. What would you say if you were at the gates of heaven and God asked you, all right, why should I let you in? And I want you to answer that question right now if you haven't already. Preferably writing it down. I mean, if you've got a pen, you can write it on paper. Uh, but if not, feel free to take out your phone. I'm not going to judge you for using your phone in church this time. Um, but I, I want everyone to have an answer uh, that they can look at and compare it to the answer that this text gives. Um, and so while you guys get that thought down, I'm just going to ramble a little bit, kind of give you some time to think about it. Um, maybe even, you know, gauge how confident you are in the answer that you gave. But while you do that, I want to take the time to remind us, like, exactly what it is that's at stake here. I mean, if you look... Nadab and Abihu got their answer wrong, and they got killed on the spot. And if you come to God one day, and you don't have a better answer than they did, you're going to end up just like them. And, on the flip side, if you get the answer right, and you don't live your life by it, then you'll be just like Aaron, who, you know, knew the answer, he knew what he needed to be right with God. But he was so afraid to come to God that he hid from God in shame because he kept forgetting that answer and didn't live his life by it. And it'll be just like me, like, who I became a Christian over six years ago. And I still struggle every day to turn to God for the joy and the satisfaction that only he can give me because of, you know, just guilt and shame. And so... Yeah, with the stakes that high, hopefully you've all got your answer down. What do you guys think the answer is? Well, 
I'm going to tell you right now, if any of you answered in the first person, you almost definitely got it wrong. If the basis for you standing before God starts with I, then you're just like Nadab and Abihu. If you said, I'm a good person, I'm not like most people, I've always tried to do good, or, you know, I did my best. And Here's this last one that's going to throw you guys for a loop, uh, so just bear with me here. I believed in Jesus. All of those missed the mark. Now, the last one, that's a little bit different, uh, and I'll talk about that, so suspend the heresy council for now. But <laughs> uh, just trust me, we'll get back to that. But first, I want to address those other ones that, we, that I just listed. Uh, and so I want you to look with me at verses 1 through 3 of this chapter. And so here we see that Nadab and Abihu come and they offer unauthorized incense to God. And what that is is just they're saying uh, that they're declaring basically that their status before God depends on how well they can worship him because they're going above and beyond God's commands, or so they think. But what God does, like we just talked about, is he kills them for it. And like we said, that's intense. And, you know, Aaron's probably looking for a justification just about now. I mean, I would too if someone killed my kids. Uh, but as his justification for this, God says in verse 3, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. Before all people, I will be glorified. And that word that you, that's used here, sanctify, in this context, what that means is that God demands that anyone who comes to him recognizes his holiness and acts accordingly. And that's what Nadab and Abihu failed to do here. That's what we fail to do whenever we give any of those first-person answers that we just gave. Anything that would cause us to think that the gap between our holiness and God's is so small that we could build a bridge across it ourselves is offensive to God and just straight up lying to ourselves. And so that's why God's so careful right after this, right after this event, to show Aaron and Eleazar and Ithamar that the only way to come to him is by the means that he himself provides. I mean, if you look at first glance, you know, verses 4 through 15 might look like God's just commanding uh, them to just straighten up, you know, get their act together, and take it a little bit more seriously before you come before the God of the universe, right? I mean, that's a big deal. But I think if you look a little more carefully, you'll see that's not quite what it's saying. I mean, the whole point of these commands is to invite Aaron and Eleazar and Ithamar to take advantage of the means that God's already made for them to come to him. In verses 12 to 15, the offerings for peace with God and forgiveness of uh, sins that we read about are given to them by God to show them that he's freely giving them that peace and that forgiveness, like actually. And the only thing they have to do is eat the offering. And so God's declaring, like, as clear as possible, I am the only one who can forgive your sins and give you peace with me. And all he wants from you is that you recognize that. And that's why Aaron and Eleazar and Ithamar aren't, you know, killed on the spot for their disobedience like Nadab and Abihu were. Because unlike Nadab and Abihu, their confidence that they have what it takes to come before God takes a hit. 
but they still know that if they're going to have any hope at all, it's going to be through the means that God himself provides. They remember that, you know, just a little bit ago, God has told them, I am the Lord who makes you holy. And so, we see their faith takes a hit, but ultimately, their standing before God doesn't depend on how strong their faith is. It depends on how strong the God is that they put their faith in. I mean, God's reaction to anyone who comes to him for the holiness that they don't have and that they need is always compassion, no matter what, no matter how sinful they are or how weak their faith is. Anyone who thinks they're holy enough for God is only ever going to meet God's anger. But anyone who trusts in the holiness that God himself provides is only ever going to find his love. And that's, that's what brings us finally to what I said earlier about that answer. You know, I believed in Jesus, missing the mark. Like I said, this one is a little different, or really a lot different, um, because it points towards the awesome truth that God has provided that holiness that we don't have in his crucified son. The Bible teaches us that Jesus is the fulfillment of all these Old Testament sacrifices and holiness laws and stuff that we read about in passages like Leviticus 10. But, I mean, it says, you know, his death was the sacrifice that gave us peace with God, forgiveness of sins, and fellowship with God. Uh, if you look, go into the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. But there's still a problem with this answer, like I said. And the problem is that the focus is still kind of on us. I mean, it's kind of like, imagine if God asked Aaron, like, like Aaron comes to the sanctuary, God asks him, hey, what are you doing in my sanctuary? And Aaron says, well, I mean, I ate the sacrifices, so I'm good, right? I mean, that's totally true. Like, Aaron's not supposed to come to God without eating those sacrifices. Just like we can't come to God without believing in Jesus. But ultimately, that's not really the basis for him being able to come to God. The reason that Aaron can come to God in the sanctuary is because God has made a way himself through those sacrifices. Eating them is just the means that Aaron uses to take advantage of the way that God has made. And in the same way, if God asks you, why should I let you come to me? And you say, oh, because I believe in Jesus, then at least to some extent, you miss the point. The whole way that you can come to God really is Jesus himself. I mean, to kind of draw on some terminology that was, that's commonly associated with the Reformation, uh, we're not saved by our faith. We're saved by grace, which is God's undeserved kindness towards us through faith. And if we get that wrong, our confidence that Jesus' death on the cross is really effective for us and sufficient for our life is going to often depend on how much faith we have, you know, how much strength we can work up to just trust God more. But I think kind of analogy can be helpful here like imagine you're in absolute free fall but you have a parachute how much faith in that parachute do you need to have to not die just enough to pull the cord on the parachute right like 
I don't care if there's a 1% chance of that parachute working. If the parachute's my only option, I'm pulling the cord on the parachute. And so in the same way, like, you, you do need faith. Like, faith is absolutely vital, but it's not what ultimately makes us right with God. And I think that's important because it frees us from kind of the guilt that pervades the lives of a lot of Christians, even. Uh, and that keeps us from coming to God. It's just really simply the wonderful truth that it's not about you. It's about God. It's about what he's done for you. And so, like I said, that truth just frees us from that constant striving to be enough for God and the constant worry, you know, that, you know, maybe we know that God won't reject us because we have Christ, but maybe he won't be as happy with us because, you know, we don't have enough faith in him. Well, guys, I'm telling you right now, if you have Christ, there isn't a single moment that God doesn't look at you and just beam with joy and love and excitement over you. I mean, of course, it breaks his heart whenever you don't come to him, whenever you turn to some sin um, instead of him for your joy and satisfaction. But, I mean, like any good father, like, that just makes him want to bring you back even more. And so, like, please, for his sake as well as yours, like, stop trying to just, you know, work up a little bit more faith and, you know, try harder to read your Bible and be disciplined in coming to church. Like, stop it. Just rest in the fact that Jesus Christ is actually enough for you. He's going to give you more faith. He'll make you more holy. He'll give you the desire for consistent spiritual nourishment. But first and foremost, you, you just got to rest in the fact that he is actually enough for those things. Now, before we close, I do want to address um, if you're someone who gave a different answer to my question that was, you know, more focused on who you are and what you've done than who Christ is and what he's done. If that was your answer... I'm telling you right now that God is saying through his word, stop working. Stop it. He's telling you there's a gap between my holiness and your unholiness that you can't just build a bridge across. It's not possible. But the good news is that he's already built the bridge with the broken body of his own son. And so it's, it's literally a matter of life and death here. And so... I'm asking you guys, are you going to choose to just take the bridge that God's already made for you? Or are you going to insist on making your own? Now, let me say it as clearly as possible here. If you stand before God one day, and the basis that you give for coming to him in any way resolves around you, then he will send you straight to hell. Now, that's a terrifying word, I know. Like, I don't like to say the H word, personally, uh, because it is terrifying, and I'm sure none of you guys like to hear it. But that's what's at stake here, and I'd be dishonest with you guys and unloving, really, towards you guys if I didn't tell you guys that. The reality is, there's infinite loss and suffering on one side of the equation. And there's infinite and incomprehensible gain on the other. 
And so you got a choice before you. And I want you to think very carefully about the answer that you gave. And ask yourself whether you need to change it in light of what you've just heard today. And if you think you might, or if you know you do, please, like, talk to someone after the service. Um, I'm sure, like, the good news is you're surrounded by a room full of people that would love nothing more than to talk about this with you. Um, and if you don't know anyone, I'm, personally, I would, like I said, I would love nothing more than to talk about this with you. And I'm sure Pastor Mike and Pastor Jared and uh, just the rest of our elders and the rest of our members would all agree. And so please, just don't leave this room without knowing for sure that you, you know, are right with God. All right, let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for your word. Uh, God, and I pray that God, you work your word into our hearts, God, and you'd help us to grasp the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ, your son, came down to die for sinners like us and to redeem us from just our own unholiness, God. God, and I pray that you just work that deeper and deeper into our hearts every day, God, and you'd use just the gospel to drive us to a desire to just know you and enjoy you every day, God, and that would be that would be how we pursue holiness and sanctification, God. That's how, that would be how we want to grow in our lives, is through knowing you better and enjoying you every day. God, and I pray that, yeah, you just carry us home into eternity. It's in your name I pray. Amen.